Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to class number 13 of the Dracula class. Uh, good to see you guys back again. We're getting into the home stretch here. Um, let me uh, uh, talk a little bit about the plan moving forward here. Just, I mean, in the, the plan for the end of the Dracula class here, these next few classes. Um, uh, I didn't, last time I was, I, I, was far too self-indulgent last time, um, which isn't going to stop me being self-indulgent again tonight. But anyway, uh, and so I, I barely got through the stuff I wanted to talk about last time and didn't have uh, time as I'd hoped to have for conclusions. Here's my thought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a plan out of that. Because what I'd really kind of like to do is sort of, you know, take each of these classes to be looking carefully through. And then at the end of next class, I'm going to be super disciplined next week. And I'm only going to take about a half to two-thirds of the class to, or yeah, half to three-quarters of the class talking about our final film. And then I want to uh, spend some time drawing some conclusions, looking at larger patterns. What do we see? You know, comparing these films to uh, the book. What kind of, you know, what sort of conclusions can we draw? I think there's some really interesting patterns we can begin to see uh, when we look at them all as a whole. So I want, I want to, I want to be doing that. So tonight we're going to focus on the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola film. Um, and uh, we'll come back, you know, so, several of you have emailed me with sort of thoughts and questions and conclusions about the earlier films, which I think are really interesting. And we're totally coming back to that. Um, but um, we'll, uh, uh, I'm going to plan, as I say, to do that next time. My goal tonight is to get through uh, this film in many ways. Uh, this is a I mean, this is a very sort of meaty film to discuss here tonight. Uh, very interesting, I think. Um, but we'll come to that. We'll come to that in a second. So, um, oh yes, and thank you, Lydia. That is the next thing that I want to uh, mention. Um, as Lydia says, she went to catch up on the uh, uh, last week's episode on YouTube, and it has been blocked. Indeed, it has. This is sort of an anticipated problem. Uh, this often, you, in fact, usually happens when we post these classes on which we're using film clips. Um, uh, YouTube is pretty inflexible. I mean, given their volume, I understand. Um, but um, I... But anyway, they're 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 pretty inflexible about this. There's not really any use attempt. We've I tried in the past to sort of attempt to explain this is an educational environment. We're just, you know, it's not a. We're not trying to scam the films or anything. But uh, anyway, before we've actually had some, uh, it kind of worked out fine. But anyway, YouTube just has a kind of a blanket policy. Therefore, two things. Uh, first. Um, if you have access to iTunes U, we have all of our classes on iTunes U, and the videos are all up there um, on uh, on on iTunes U. And um, Apple seems to be a bit more uh, understanding. Certainly, iTunes U, being an educational outlet, is a little bit more understanding about this about fair use for educational purposes. So they have not, in fact, blocked the videos there. So if you have access to iTunes, you go to our Dracula class there and you'll find the video still there. Uh, if not, I'm going to um, I'm going to post the just a, a link to the a direct link to the video so that you can download the video yourself. Uh, we've been using YouTube for that because it's, it's much easier and more convenient and easier to, to sort of publicize it and, and uh, uh, put it out there for folks. Um, but in this case, we're going to have to use the other one. So I'm actually right now. Um, just sending a link. This is the direct link um, if you guys want to look at the video. So those of you who weren't here last time, that link should take you straight to either to enable you to download or to or to just watch, just 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 to stream uh, last week's class. So 
Sorry about that. Again, this was, I figured, we figured figured this was going to happen. So I have some workarounds kind of prepared and uh, we're kind of waiting to see if it would actually occur. Last week was kind of the test case since the first film class, of course, Um, both of those are in the public domain. So, um, but uh, anyway, so there we are. Uh, So we can get around that. I apologize for the inconvenience for those of you who weren't able to see it uh, in advance. Um, Okay. So, third thing, I want to make sure to remind everybody before we uh, uh, before we get going, we are now only three weeks away from the beginning of the Lost Road class. Our next class is on Tolkien's The Lost Road and Other Writings, Volume 5 of The History of Middle-Earth. Uh, very excited about that. So I uh, hope you guys will be, uh, you know, hope that many of you will be able to join us uh, for that course. That will begin on the first Wednesday of July, July 6th, I believe, if I have my dates correct. Um, we're going to begin uh, uh, that one. So I hope, to, just wanted to remind you that that's all coming up so you guys can be doing some, uh, doing some, some, some reading in advance for that. Um, uh, very good. Okay. Excellent. And I just wanted to confirm, uh, Marie and Cecilia that I got your questions. I'm so excited that I got your questions. Um, Rachel asks, are we reading all of Christopher Tolkien's commentary? Yeah, pretty much. Well, at least I'm going to talk about it. Um, I mean, of course, the 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 primary texts are the things that we'll obviously we'll spend most time on. But I will be talking about Christopher's commentary too. And Christopher's commentary is generally very useful. Um, and in fact, what I, I mean, often I kind of I kind of do take a bunch of Christopher Tolkien's commentary for granted. Um, what he does a particularly good job of in his commentary is just sort of pointing out similarities and differences. Right. So you know he'll 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 draw your attention to you know hear things that are the same same as in the published Silmarillion and here are things that are, you know, he'll, he'll draw attention to the, to the, to the discrepancies and differences, you know, things that you, that you should really pay special attention to. And I'm really grateful that he does that. Cause I don't, that I don't then spend a whole lot of time in class, uh, just going over th- things kind of on that level. Um, so it's great to be able to sort of start with that. So, uh, so yes, yes. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that is indeed the play. It's not, 100% essential um but it's uh but it's pretty important. Okay. Are you ready? Let's talk about the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. Um now uh um when I um I decided from the beginning that I I really I'm not I'm not really interested to to talk a whole lot about the you know all that extra sexual stuff uh in this film. So we're pretty much done then, I think, right? Good night. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding, right? It's not actually that bad. In fact, actually, I have to say, uh, when I saw this film in the theaters. This is the f- the first of the films that we're showing that I that I uh, that I uh, that I'm old enough to have seen in the theaters, and um, I, my memory of this film was actually like uh, it, it was actually less persistently sexual than I remembered. Um, there are moments which are still quite unnecessary. Um, and yet, uh, uh, as I said, kind of actually less so than I, than I remembered. Um, Lucy is the part for me, um, uh, that was far too over the top. Um, though it did kind of have a payoff in that it set up one enormously funny line, which we'll get to later on. But um, anyway, so I'm going to start off with some just some random observations um, because I can't help myself. So I, and and 
I want to be kind of, you know, I've, I've been sort of poking gentle fun at elements of some of the other films and it seems only fair not to, uh, uh, not to give uh, the more modern film a pass uh, on that kind of thing. So, first of all, oh, the costuming in this film, right? I mean, wow. I just couldn't... Uh, it's, I, I, I was floored. I mean, would you just look at that hat? I mean, I, I, seriously. Like, is that not the most adorable little green hat, right? Mina's little fetching outfit here. I mean, Mina has many little fetching outfits, right? I think this was my favorite of Mina's fetching outfits. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, immediately after she shows up in that awesome hat, she's, like, one-upped by Dracula in this awesome hat, right? I mean... What a topper he's got! This is like the John Lennon in a top hat look, which I absolutely loved. In my, it's it's a a favorite little part when when Jonathan Harker leans over right and points to him when he's still pretty much in this getup. Right, it's not this same scene; uh, it's later on. But anyway, he, he's 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 back in his like John Lennon look here, and uh, and Jonathan points to him and delivers the line from the book. It's the man himself, but he has grown young. And I'm looking at him like, how on earth could anybody possibly recognize that this <laughs> this guy is the same person as the guy in uh, uh, that he met? You know, the the Dracula that he met in the castle. Um, it just it just like. Seriously, that's some pretty mad identification skills uh, that Jonathan Harker has. I think this is this is possibly my favorite Dracula look ever. I mean, this is pretty good, right? Um, and uh, but I mean, really, I think the cake is taken, uh, obviously, by Lucy's wedding dress, which I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Uh, like Elizabeth the first cosplay is what she was going for here. I mean, she was like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting married. So I want to dress up as the Virgin queen. Right. That's all I had. I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I love it. She's like, do you like it? And, and Jack Seward has that look like, uh, you are completely repulsive and I, and I, and I don't want to mention it. Uh, however, I will say that this, uh, gown has one, uh, one <laughs> Margaret Joyce says she was just asking to be beheaded in that gown. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, true, true enough. Though, Margaret, I will say the one thing that this gown does have going for it uh, is that it stays on, right? This, I really actually would have recommended that Lucy go with the, the high throat look a little more often, if you know what I mean, right? There was a um, high percentage of wardrobe malfunction where Lucy's character was concerned. And I was, I, I thought that was really plenty. Um, I will add on that note that uh, making up clips for tonight's class was somewhat challenging as I was determined to make them all family friendly, which was hard at some points. And in fact, there's one of them, uh, which I actually had to edit. I had to cut out a bit uh, in the middle uh, for a, uh, for decency's sake. It's true, Karita. Karita points out it's only a malfunction if you don't want it to happen. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, true enough, Karita. Um, we'll, we'll come to some of that later on. Um, 
Yana, this isn't exactly her burial dress, though her burial dress is like this. Uh, it is. Uh, you're certainly right that only her wedding dress and her burial dress are, are the only two <laughs> modest outfits uh, uh, featuring really no chance for nudity whatsoever uh, uh, that Lucy ever wears, um, which is kind of interesting in its way, right? Um, but anyway, okay. Um, but then, of course, we have... Uh, and again, since we, I, I was so fond of this in Nosferatu, I, I, I again thought it only fair to sort of come back to it. That is, because this is becoming a trend now, right? Dracula's costume as coachman in disguise, right? I, I look for this now, right? Uh, now that after after being just completely, I, I'm falling in love with Nosferatu's Robin Hood outfit, which was such a cunning disguise. We got the wolves. What is that? It's a helmet? Yes, a helmet and a cowl. A beaked helmet and a cowl. Nice gloves, too. Really inspires confidence. Does he actually pick him up here by the shoulder? So it's... It's more Ringwraith than Robin Hood, really. Uh, I have to say, it is nothing like as fetching as uh, as that Robin Hood outfit that Nosferatu wears. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Both Gerald uh, and Mick are talking about how his arm seems to be able to uh, to extend, um, which is a little bit, a little bit. Uh, the whole thing is a little bit odd. And again, the way that he rises, okay, it looks like he's bodily lifting him. And carrying him like his feet actually leave the ground. Jonathan's feet actually leave the ground, but you'd think he would like have some kind of a larger reaction to that, right? I'm being. I mean, if someone just picks you up by the one shoulder, like that would hurt, right? I mean, it's the whole thing is just kind of uh, odd. Um, but um, anyway, so you know, uh, uh, it's it's not as cool as Nosferatu, but, I mean, how can you really compete with that? And then, of course, speaking of Jonathan Harker, there is... There's a great cast of this film, but, boy, some of the acting performances, and among those, I really have to say that Keanu Reeves stands out. Opportunities such as this come but once in a lifetime. Yes, of course, sir. If I may inquire... What in fact happened to Mr. Renfield in Transylvania? <laughs> His accent is so bad. <laughs> personal problems. Close these transactions. And your future with this firm is assured. Yes, sir. I will give it my full attention. <laughs> I just love it when Keanu Reeves is pulling this super serious face. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Um, Lydia says she loves how nothing above the mouth moves. Yeah, uh, this was this was really one of Keanu Reeves's finest hours. Um, when this movie came out, I was so I found I mean I already I I I hadn't really come to the point in my life where I totally fell in love with Dracula. Um, I was that was about ninety six ninety seven. Really, nineteen ninety seven was when I like because that was when I bought the audiobook of Dracula and listened to it like a hundred times. Um, that's when I really really fell in love with the book. I'd read it already, though. I read it in my senior year of high school. So I'd known the book when the film came out. Um, and I liked it. So, you know, it was, okay. But 
but anyway, so I, I was so amused by Keanu Reeves' depiction of of uh, of Jonathan Harker that I, I made such outrageous fun of him that I, that actually, like in college, several of my friends as a gag gift got me like an eight by ten glossy of of Keanu Reeves depicting Jonathan Harker for me to hang up in my dorm room one day. Uh, but I don't know where they found that. But anyway, it was it's and it, 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 Keanu Reeves was like my favorite bad actor. Um, and they kept putting him like in this era, part of his career, uh, they kept putting him in those like period, like these period pieces, right? That he's in Dracula. He's in dangerous liaisons. He's in much ado about nothing. I mean, he's it's, Oh man. It, it, and he's so bad in every single one of them, obviously. Right. Keanu Reeves had like pretty much, um, fulfilled his, uh, his, his, his niche, uh, as an actor and and really uh, exhausted his range as Ted Theodore Logan uh, in Bill and Ted's uh, Great Adventure, which is clearly like that's obviously his role. Right. Um, but um, uh, oh, man, it's, it's just there's so, I, I, I tried to resist. I'm like, I can't just make that, you know, all of these clips uh, with uh, just like with Keanu Reeves acting badly. Um, but, uh, but anyway, th- there will be, there will be a couple others, but boy, I'm saying his English accent is worse than Winona Ryder's. Uh, and it's hilarious. I mean, Winona Ryder is not, I mean, she's cute as a button, but she's not really excellent in this film, but maybe that's why they put Keanu Reeves in. Cause they're like, Winona Ryder is like really, you know, she's really cute and she's, she's really good for this part. But, um, but you know her accent isn't very good, and she's 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 not really awesome. So let's get somebody who actually makes her like really distracts from uh, from that. And I think in, in that case it was really a, a brilliant a brilliant call. Uh, anyway, but see Yana exactly that was my problem. Um, throughout the '90s, I, I I I I loved making fun of Keanu Reeves, and then The Matrix comes out in 1999, and he was kind of brilliant in the matrix. Like the matrix was kind of perfect and one of my favorite films ever. So I like suddenly found my, um, you know, like the, the, the chair kicked out from under me in, uh, in, in, in making fun of Keanu Reeves. But anyway, um, now Veronica, you Veronica says she makes Mina look weak and flaky. True. True. Um, um, but no, Mick, I'm serious about that. I actually really do like the. I I I love the Matrix as a film. It's it is it certainly was my favorite film of the of the decade of the '90s, and uh, I I think it's a I I I think it's a wonderful film. And again, I'm not saying he was. I mean, he is not a good actor, and neither in that movie nor anywhere else was he a great actor. Again, other than Bill and Ted, uh, where he seemed to just be kind of you know in his natural uh, milieu. But but I. I, I couldn't make fun of him in the Matrix. Like he was fine in the Matrix. It it worked. Like his thing worked when they finally got him out of 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 you know these these period films uh, and uh, you know let him kind of do his thing and it was good. Again, I I I, I could no longer make fun of him. Besides which, as I said, I really I really love the Matrix. So anyhow, okay. Um, I'm sorry. All right, but now allow me to return here and make a serious point. 
No, no, sorry. Let me get Keanu off the screen so I can make a serious point because it's really difficult. When he's, uh, he's like, this guy, like Peter Hawkins, who has like these three lines in the whole thing, acts circles around Keanu in this scene. It's so funny. Like his facial expressions are so dynamic. And uh, anyway, uh, sorry. Point is um, that um, did you notice? Did you get the reference in this? Did you notice the parallel here? fact happened to Mr. Renfield in Transylvania? Nothing. Nothing. Personal problems. Close these transactions and your future with this firm is assured. Yes. Think about the first two films that we saw, right? And you see what this film is, how this film is positioning itself? And it does so pretty aggressively, right? On the one hand, it is... Like it's following the Bela Lugosi film in having Renfield be a sort of the solicitor who goes over uh, to Transylvania. Now, it doesn't replace Jonathan, of course. Jonathan still goes. But the idea that Renfield had gone over and had come under Dracula so that there's a direct connection between Dracula and Renfield. Um, again, so it, th- this film brings that in from the Bela Lugosi film, um, though has that happen off stage, right? So that we can still focus on on Jonathan's trip and Jonathan's trip doesn't become a kind of redundancy. Not that we know that it's exactly redundant. We never exactly find out what happened with Renfield. Of course, one of the consequences of putting Renfield uh, in that sort of off-screen, you know, harbinger role that he gets is the great... uh, reduction of Renfield's character, um, which, of course, on the one hand, I find sad because I love Renfield's character in the book so much. But um, but actually, I, I was kind of OK with it. I mean, you think about the first two films, especially, of course, Renfield. Um, uh, there is no Renfield in uh, in the horror of Dracula, which we talked about last week. But um, the, the the Renfield in the first two films, both of them got lots of screen time, right? They, they were on screen a lot. Um, the Renfield who goes crazy for no obvious reason in Nosferatu and is calling out to the master and then has that bizarre, like, running around the city with everybody chasing him you know, with, like, the lynch mob after him and it's hard to figure out even why they're doing it and what the heck's going on. Um, there was that in Nosferatu, right? And then in the Bela Lugosi version we had... Um, of course, Renfield was 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 a, a major figure, and yet, as I was arguing there, it's I found it in the end so unsatisfying. His role in that film seems so central from his taking the Jonathan Harker role in the beginning. You know, he's there literally from the beginning to the end, and even the way in which the I mean, you think about it visually, how the beginning and the ending of Renfield's character uh, are symmetrical. Right, that is with him showing up in, Transl- in in Castle Dracula and Dracula coming down the steps to him and him going up right and following Dracula and then again with the steps at Carfax right and Dracula coming down and him coming up except this time instead of coming down to welcome him Dracula comes down to kill him right so I mean the, the, I mean all of that stuff kind of comes together to sort of invite us to really pay attention to Drac to Renfield's role and and what's going on and, and it doesn't go anywhere like it doesn't accomplish anything i i find it really disappointing in the end um and uh and and a little bit frustrating renfield gets it's not that his 
character gets more resolved here, and there are still some kind of unanswered questions with what they try to squeeze in. Like, it's not, a, I, I wasn't 100% sure, like, was he betraying Dracula? Was he being unfaithful? Was he being, like, true to Mina and and turning from Dracula in that moment when he has the thing with Mina between the bar, you know, through the bars of his cage. I don't know. Um, I mean, it looked like it. I think we are supposed to understand that. And that's why he comes back and says like, I will, you know, I'm faithful to you. But again, at the, at the end of the day, all we get is another groveling Renfield just killed by Dracula without him actually accomplishing anything with his death or attempting to accomplish anything with his death. Um, and neither one of them have in neither one of those depictions, uh, this film or the previous or the, the Bela Lugosi film, do they accomplish any, or the first one either. Uh, none of the depictions of Renfield so far have accomplished any kind of actual resistance. He looked closest to it in the Bela Lugosi version, but then he backs down at the end and just is groveling. Um, um, exactly, Philip. The kind of nobility of character that Renfield showed in the book, which is what makes him so endearing to me um, in the end. Um, none of it, uh, none of the films have even attempted to capture that. Again, I think the Bela Lugosi one comes closest, but it still doesn't really doesn't really do it. Anyway, as you might be able to guess from the fact that I'm going on like this about Renfield, it's not a random... Um, it's not a random sideline. I'm doing this first because I'm not going to talk a lot about Renfield tonight because his character was so incidental. Um, uh, so I have, I have, I have, I have zero clips uh, about uh, about Dracula here tonight, or about Renfield. I, I do have some about Dracula actually, uh, about Renfield here tonight. So uh, that's why I wanted to kind of address him at the beginning. But the second thing, again, is to point out the connections that this film has, not just with the book, but with the earlier films. I think this is a, this film is extremely cognizant of its kind of status in the Dracula film tradition, right? Um, especially going back to Bela Lugosi and to Nosferatu. And I would say especially, especially with Nosferatu. Even the whole framework of this conversation between Jonathan Harker and Peter Hawkins, right? Remember, when Peter Hawkins sends Jonathan Harker in the book, right, he says in the sort of letter um, that he sends along with Jonathan, which Dracula reads to Jonathan, right, um, and which we get in the diary in chapter one, uh, he says, you know, he, 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 Peter Hawkins, was going to come himself, um, but he can't because he's got, he's got the gout. He can't travel. Uh, so he uh, is, is delighted to say that he can send a more than sufficient substitute, right? So there's no question of like, you know, like you think about what, um, what Hawkins just said here in this clip, like, if you, you know, do that, then your future in this firm is assured, right? And at the very beginning of this clip, he's talking about what a wonderful opportunity this is for you, Jonathan Harker. Um, that's not that's not how it works in the book. That's not the relationship that Peter Hawkins and Jonathan have in the book. But it's exactly what Renfield, who is in Peter Hawkins' position, remember in in Nosferatu. There's no Peter Hawkins. It's 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 Renfield who runs the firm, and Jonathan works for him, right? And that's exactly what Renfield says to Jonathan Harker in Nosferatu. What an opportunity this is for you. Except there, he's not saying your future in the firm. He's saying like because like you know these uh, these rich foreigners throw their money around like crazy, right? So you'll probably get filthy rich with this. So um, so again, we can see them them, but but again, I don't want to go so far as to suggest this film is is 
more of an adaptation of the earlier films than it is an adaptation of the book. It's clearly reading the book very closely. There is more dialogue pulled directly out of the book than in any of the films that we've seen so far. There have been some quotations at various points. This film does it a great deal more uh, than any of the other three that we have uh, talked about so far. Uh, so it's a film which, which is uh, reading the book and doing some very interesting things with the book. Um, but it's... Uh, um, but it's also very, very conscious of the, um, of the films. And yes, Carolyn, of course, we do have the, uh, uh, the full comp. We get Quincy and Arthur come back, right? We finally get Quincy. We had Arthur, right? Though he was kind of not, he was, you know, he was in a, he was in a very different sort of role. Um, but we did at least get Arthur, uh, uh, Arthur Holmwood last time uh, in Horror of Dracula. Now we finally... Uh, Dr. Seward takes his, uh, his, his, his proper role. Uh, we get, uh, we get Quincy Morris, the Texan for the first time, uh, in any of the films that we have seen so far. And yes, Arthur, I had forgotten clean and completely forgotten that Gary Ellis played Arthur Holmwood until he walked on. And I just was watching it again last week. And, and you know, when, when Arthur walks on, I'm like, no way. <laughs> Gary Ellis. And then, and then, yeah, Nancy, I was like, oh my gosh, but that mustache, right? Seriously. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> Sarah Lacard says we kept on adding as you wish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Yana, I, I agree. Not only was Quincy Morris, the Texan there, but he, he, he has his Winchester, right? And he even does like the John Wayne one-handed cocking the Winchester thing. And I was like, oh man, serious props, right? For making Quincy Morris like a serious Texan, right? Um, but uh, even using some American slang uh, as we'll, uh, as we'll get to. Um, so anyway, so this kind of the, the, these kind of references to the earlier films again they keep popping up. Sometimes they're not enormously central, but they keep kind of uh, bubbling to the surface. Like, did you um, did you recognize this? At the drop of a pampas vampire bat must consume ten times its own weight in fresh blood each day. Remember that? That's exactly the way that the scene was set up in Nosferatu, right? Where you had um, uh, you had the microscope, right? Remember, we, th- there was the uh, there was the Venus fly trap that he was lecturing, right? In the v- that's how we introduced we met the professor in uh, in Nosferatu. We had the Venus fly trap, the vampire of the plant world, and then we had the microscopic picture of that uh, um, that. Oh, was it like a hydra, the one-celled organism thing um, that was, uh, you know, which was like a phantom, right? Remember? Um, but those cuts from like the shot of the microscope to uh, Van Helsing in a circular lecture hall like this, he's even he's even wearing, you know, this sort of long coat. It's not quite the fancy dressing gown that he seemed to be wearing in Nosferatu for reasons which I still don't fully understand. Um, but he uh, he is at least standing in the middle of the lecture hall uh, uh, and lecturing, though, of course, he's lecturing on uh, vampires. Um, Notice how adorable the vampire bat looks, right? Um, In this, 
I mean, I think they're kind of they. I I kind of think they go out of their way to make the va- to make like show the vampire bat and be like, aww, right? Um, oh, good. Yana says uh, the uh, the 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 Van Helsing gets the the Dutch accent. Yana stamp of approval here. Yeah, good, good. I agree. Um, I agree that uh, he, he 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 does seem a little more plausibly Dutch uh, than the book Van Helsing. Uh, I will agree with that. Um, oh, we'll come back to Van Helsing here. I f- Van Helsing in this film is one of the things that I find most troubling, actually. Of all the potentially troubling things, I was troubled by that. Another major thing that I would point out, and again, this is just about sort of the, the, their approach in this film, which I thought was very, very cool, um, was the choice that they made um, in how they presented the narrative, right? Um, what I mean is how they how they interlaced the narrative in the film, right? Um, we don't get Jonathan Harker's trip to Transylvania and stick with it, right? We get it interlaced with what's going on with Mina and Lucy and everybody else back at home. Right now, in part, that's because his stay in Transylvania is protracted, right? Because he, in fact, remains a prisoner of the three women for an almost indefinite period uh, after the month that Dracula has him stay with them. So, um, so he's over there for longer, for one thing. Um, but, but it's not just that, right? I mean, think about how this works in the book. Time does jump backwards in the book. Um, you know, we do get, we get the, well, time doesn't go backwards. It's the, it's the time that he, that, that Dracula is traveling. But, um, but anyway, we do get that, you know, we get, we get the four solid chapters of Jonathan Harker at the beginning of the book. Then we go to England. And once we get to England, we're going back and forth, right? Mina and Dr. Seward and, uh, Lucy and all, you know, all those different voices. And then Jonathan gets woven into that when he comes back. So the idea of we're going to present this in chronological order, jumping back and forth, is actually following the book. It's almost, if you see what I mean by this, it's like it's following the book almost more than the book is following the book's concept, right, in that way. But, but more, it, it points us, when we think about this, it points us to, I think, a really important thing. And it's not like a, you know... A, like super sensitive uh, insight or anything. It's it's a pretty obvious observation, but think of the role that Jonathan Harker's four, first four chapters play. And we talked about this when we were discussing, you know, the for those first like eight to ten chapters, right? Um, those first four chapters give us as readers a kind of insight. We are there with Jonathan, and we as readers have our first experience along with Jonathan of this sort of discovery of the uncanny supernatural preternatural things that are happening, right? Um, you know, we're sort of with him and and finding out that the peasants are right and all these things. So we learn all these things and we learn about Dracula and who he is and we learn a lot about vampires as we discussed at the time. Um, and we know Dracula's plan and we get, and then we go to England. And so once we go back to England and we're with Mina and Dr. Seward and Van Helsing and Lucy, we know way more than they do, right? So it, we we get our sort of orientation to the whole story rooted very firmly in those first four chapters. That's the function that that one, that longest continuous narrative in the whole book, the only time we get one voice for that long in a row. And it's really important to kind of ground us and give us this insight that we use throughout the entire rest of the book. The film 
doesn't. So on the one hand, one is tempted to say by interlacing in the way that it does, the film kind of loses that, right? But it does that for a reason. It's a deliberate. It seems to be a deliberate choice anyway. It's a perfectly sensible choice because Jonathan in Transylvania is now no longer our insight into what's going on, right? Our insight, you know, the sort of the contextualization um, of the whole story comes not with Jonathan in Transylvania, but with the historical flashback at the beginning, right? With, uh, you know, the original story of Vlad the Impaler and Elisabetta. So um, that's what we bring with us. And that's the thing which plays a very similar role. It, of course, doesn't do the same kind of gradual... You know, uh, it, it doesn't accomplish the same effect, right? Doesn't doesn't achieve, doesn't attempt to achieve the same effect of that kind of dawning of realization and understanding that we get in those first four chapters with Jonathan. But it does do a similar thing in sort of giving us a backstage look, right? So that through the rest of the film we know more, and we have that that same sort of force of dramatic irony is something that the film plays on very very strongly, right? Uh, sometimes it's a little the dialogue's a little bit forced in that direction, like when um, he Dracula first sees the uh, the picture of Mina, uh, right? That uh, that that Jonathan has, and Jonathan has apparently misplaced it, right? And so of course he says like, "Oh, you have found Mina." Uh, You know, uh, you know, she had been lost or something, and uh, you know, and and so the dramatic irony, of course, is as you say, I think a little bit over the top there, but you know, anyway, it's 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 fairly intense, Um, and uh, but but again, very very you know, very sort of pointedly um, executed the dramatic irony there, right? And there are many places, you know, with uh, you know, like I feel that like I am, you know, Jonathan Harker has another line like that about feeling like he's you know, taking part in a story that he doesn't, you know, that he doesn't understand. Um, yeah, of course, right? But we understand, right? The readers understand, or the viewers understand. And, uh, you know, we understand so much more than Mina, you know, the, all the significant looks that he's giving to her and their conversation together and everything, right? We, we know what's going on. It's that historical frame in the film that has that force. And you're absolutely right, Gerald, that we as viewers are much more knowledgeable about vampires, and vampire stories by this time, right? We don't need that same kind of introduction to, like, what is this strange, creepy thing, and how does it work? And, you know, we don't need Van Helsing to come in and be like, it is the undead. Right? We know it's the undead, right? Um, um, <laughs> funny thing about the origin of that, about how, how that worked. I had a funny reminder today of how that word is not as automatic, like, we get so we're so acclimated to the word undead, right? We don't even think about it. Um, but uh, but I was I, I I got a funny reminder to how foreign the concept that we attach to the word undead is, like how non-implicit it is in the word. In actually, my uh, my my eight-year-old a school project, my eight-year-old brought home, and it was just like this like words about spring sort of diagram, whatever thing that he did on the computer. And so it was just like words and concepts that he attached to the to the concept of spring. Um, uh, and some of those were not ex- extraordinarily insightful things like no more skiing and uh, others of them were a little bit odd, like more moles. I don't know, like quite just like the mole population increases in the spring. Um, 
but one of them was he said he said undead grass <laughs> which i thought was wonderful right because of course it conjures this hysterical uh image in my mind of like the grass like the living dead but that's obviously not what he meant right he just means the grass ceases to be dead and green live green grass comes up right but again it's um uh, it's a, it's, it's, it, it was sort of a reminder, you know, that the, the application of the prefix un to the word dead doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, you know it's still kind of a, kind of a, a strange concept. Um, undead, not alive, just like Arthur would say. Anyway, um, but yeah, so, uh, undead grass, I'm, 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 I've, I've, I've been thinking of like a cartoon drawing of, of this, uh, especially comical in that. Um, ironically, uh, my that same son is a huge Plants vs. Zombies uh, 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 fan, so it's kind of especially ironic in the, in, in the context. But anyhow, okay. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, the interlacing. Now, here's one thing that I will say, though. There are several wonderful moments where the film takes rich advantage of the interlacing of the two stories, sometimes with enormously comical effect, I love the fades and cuts uh, in this in this film. Some of them are hilarious. The great and classic one, of course, being cutting straight from the decapitation of Lucy's screaming corpse with blood flying everywhere to, uh, in the same visual space, the roast beef and Van Helsing slicing the roast beef for Mina and Jonathan, right? That, that cut from Lucy's corpse to the roast beef um, was... Um, uh, is is I mean I I I will I will I I, I remember uh, laughing out loud in the theater in 1992 when I first saw that film. Um, it was it was hilarious. But there are other moments when it's not just used for comical effect, um, but when it's also used in really interesting ways. Uh, so here's one. This is post-traumatized Jonathan. Sneaking around the castle, watching the gypsies at work. Texan with the big knife, they say, each flanking this aggressively phallic fountain in the background. Uh, some of those things, like right, see Philip exactly. This is the kind of dress that Lucy wears all the time. I, I really, I, I want to see more of the Elizabethan rough look, frankly. But anyhow, um, we, you notice how that cut worked, right? We're immediately coming down to you know like naughty talk and her t- talking about Arthur. But first we get and this robe, like wow, I mean. Anyway, um, notice how we have him in this incredibly shiny ceremonial robe, and then we immediately cut to Lucy in the same visual space, right, from a distance, right? So it's like him in the foreground, and then Lucy walking in, strewing flowers here and there, saying, I love him, I love him, I love him, right? Um, and of course, especially knowing it's it's a moment... It, if you know the story, right, if you've read the book or if you've seen the earlier films, okay, earlier films won't actually help you all that much, right? The Horror of Dracula would help you a little bit. It's the only one in which we really got the Lucy Westerner plot. 
uh, even though she wasn't called Lucy Weston Road, but that's okay. Um, the point is, uh, if we know what's coming, right, we see dramatic irony here. We get the juxtaposition, the visual juxtaposition of Lucy, of Dracula, and then Lucy saying, I love him, I love him, I love him, right? So the, the kind of, the, the irony there, yeah, of course she's actually talking about Arthur, her fiancé, but she is, um, but we know that, you know, there's going to be this issue, right, with Dracula coming up. So, um, so anyway, so that's, Fun. Then this is only one example. So there's a, there's several other examples I'm going to want to point to uh, later on because I think this is a, this is a really neat effect uh, that we get. And sometimes sometimes the film uses it for comical effect, but sometimes uh, it does this in really really interesting ways. Um, that is the the interlacing and the going back and forth and the way that it, it uses that as a mechanism to invite us to kind of be be bringing these concepts together either through by accomplishing some dramatic irony and foreshadowing as in that moment. Um, or really to invite us to kind of think about two different characters, like the story arcs of two different characters kind of overlapping um, and be sort of seeing them as foils for each other and stuff. Some some really interesting and complicated stuff um, that they that they do with this. So, okay, well, we haven't talked that much about actually Dracula himself here. So um, let's um, let's do that. And I want to I want to I want to focus on um, this film is pretty persistent in giving us a fairly complicated, um, sort of conflicted view of Dracula, right? Um, this is clearly not a, a sort of a, uh, this is not simplistic. Here's our introduction to him. That is, if you don't count the whole ring wraith with the extendable arm business that we get earlier on. Does look like Isengard. Welcome to my home. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Harcourt, to my house. Come here. The Threshold. (laughs) I love that he wears that cape around the house. You know, that's just like what he wears, right? Uh, I always wear a cape that's like 20 feet long because, you know, it's what you do. Um, I, um, I love the, I love his delivery of these lines. I love the, um, and notice how many things, there's so many things that it's picking up on here that weren't, have not, haven't really been a part of Dracula so far. The fact that the threshold is a really big idea. And like, I was joking about this last week. For those of you who were here last week, you'll remember, I was joking about the fact that Dracula just has this like open door policy, apparently castle Dracula in the horror of Dracula, like Jonathan comes wandering in and Dracula is not there. And he just left a note for him. And Van Helsing later on comes in and pursues him. You know, anyway, it's just, 
the door is always open. Anybody can always walk in. It's always open and unlocked. Um, it, there's never any problem with that. The, I, like the idea of Dracula having this this sort of open door policy, is it was bothering me, um, and I I didn't really I didn't even really think it through. I didn't put, didn't put my finger on what was bothering me about it until I saw this moment in this film again, and then I was like, oh yeah, of course that's why. Because crossing into Dracula's house should be a big deal, not something you just walk off the street and do, right? I mean, that when you cross his threshold, like a transaction has occurred, right? It's a big deal, and I like the fact that they made a big deal about that. That seemed it, it gave this, um, um, it gave this this moment a really a really fitting weight i love his delivery of these lines he he you know almost all these lines are directly from the book and he's kind of capturing the sort of stilted awkwardness that you we can hear i think in dracula's dialogue there at the beginning um yeah brickle says he seems like a such a sad lovable creepy old relic exactly that's i think that's a perfect description rickle sad lovable creepy old yeah absolutely um that's um um <laughs> that's that's pretty yeah uh, uh, uh several people though are are just completely distracted by the hair um which i i have i don't even know what is to be said about that hairstyle um <laughs> Karina says uh um you know, his uh, his hair is kind of like, you know, when one bouffant just isn't enough. Um, yeah, I uh, I hear you. I hear you. And uh, Margaret Joyce opines that it, it clearly took him four centuries to master that hairstyle. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, you're right, Mark. Princess Leia would have to work up to that for a really, for a really long time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Tomas and and uh, uh, and Sarah were pointing out they even made the hairy hands, right? The hairy palms uh, on Dracula. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so what do we notice here? If I look at his face, he's so cute. Like what a cute old guy, right? Who doesn't like kind of know what to say, right? I don't have that many guests, right? Leave something of the happiness you bring, right? I am Dracula. Right. It's so adorable. And um, yeah, Jordan, you're right. We don't have any mustache. Right. They didn't they didn't do the mustache thing, though. Ironically, he has a mustache when he gets younger. But. um, Where are we here? Where are we here? Peter Pan. Yeah, I know, Sarah, you're right. We're in Peter Pan with the detached shadow. Uh, But uh, but it's not exactly Peter Pan. Right. Um. What are we? What are we recalling here? Exactly, Philip and Tomas. It's just like Nosferatu, right? Remember the, remember the the dominant motif of the shadow on the wall, right? The shadow of the Nosferatu, uh, where in, you know both like when he comes and he overshadows Jonathan, right? We see him approaching in shadow so much of the time, especially of course in that final scene with Nina whom I have to remember to use the N, uh, the both Ns, uh, in her Nosferatu name. Anyway, that's straight out of Nosferatu, right? So we get this, uh, this, this clear uh, memory of the shadow of the vampires, even with the, the hands, right? Uh, you know, here we get, the, we get that same 
not quite the like look that we got from Nosferatu, but um, but still we get the we get the creeping hands, but then how it dissolves into like oh no he's just holding the lamp that's why the shadow looks that way right this sort of plausible explanation for why his shadow is kind of doing that on the wall, um, but you notice something I didn't notice until I was actually editing clips. Look at Jonathan's shadow. Look at Jonathan's shadow here on the wall. The light is in front of him. He should not be cast. There's no light behind him. He shouldn't be casting. The light's all from here. Right? Those torches. Here and here. He's not cast. He should not be casting a shadow in front of him. And yet, this shadow of Jonathan anticipates him. Right? As he comes in. And if you watch, like with the Count, his shadow is never... His uh, uh, Harker's shadow here is not quite in sync with his body movements, right? Um, and that's, I think that's kind of cool, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that the the shadows. This is clearly again. This is clearly a major motif in the film. I mean, it's it's obviously a thing that they're that they're really playing with, and sometimes I think. Uh, wonderfully, I think sometimes it's re- sometimes it's really cheesy, but sometimes I think it's 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 really super effective. So, he, but so what do we get? Okay, we get that like from just here. I I, I think Dracula is kind of lovable, right? Kind of creepy, um, but also you know we get this that you know like the the grasping dark shadow coming across. Even the way in which again it's like Nosferatu and. Bela Lugosi, right? On the one hand, it's the shadow on the wall like Nosferatu, but he's doing the thing like Bela Lugosi did when he was trying to command Van Helsing. Calm, right? Uh, that's, what, that's what the shadow's doing on the wall. Um, anyway, so I, that's that's cool, right? That's really neat. Dracula, um, as I said, he gets... Um, his depiction is conflicted so he's this like nice old guy except he's pretty seriously creepy and he's got some issues um but then we get these moments right after his arrival in london ship just arriving there goes the wolf and we get wolf cam Several times we get wolf cam in this game, right? <laughs> so, so, um, I don't speak wolf or werewolf, which is the form he appears to be in here, this kind of wolfman thing he's got going on. Um, but this... apparently translates to come outside and see me and wear something slinky. Right? Um, it's possible, of course, that Lucy just happened to be wearing to bed that night this... <laughs> flowing diaphanous red robe with the incredibly swooshing thing going on there. 
Oh, and leave your crucifix behind. That was also apparently contained within that. I love how the curtains imitate both in their, their, their sort of a more muted red. But then you see you get the billowing curtains again. The wind blowing into her bedroom and the wind blowing her nightgown around. Yeah. Um, uh, Philip says, Lucy with a crucifix. Yeah, everybody in this film just like has crucifixes, right? That's a thing. It seems everybody seems to have one. Like that scene right there, right? Lucy has, is just a thing that she does, apparently. Um, but, uh, yeah, and Rickle, you're right. The, the, the red, sh- the, the, uh, you have the effect of the, the scene with her, the red shawl draping over the statue, like blood covering a body. Yeah, she like lifts up her arm and the, 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 this silk shawl or whatever fabric that is, uh, yeah, kind of ripples over the top of the statue. It is really neat, right? Like the, you know, being sort of being covered over in this, in this, in this blood, blood red color, of course, that she's going out and wearing. So it's not only sort of the scarlet of the voluptuous woman, um, but, but of course also, uh, blood as well. Um, so what do we see here? Right. This, of course, is not the, like, lovable kind of dorky old guy that we met at the threshold. Um, we see him in the the choice that they make on several occasions, not only to have him transforming into animals, which, remember, the last film cut out, right? Oh, no. Turn himself into a batterer wolf? No, that doesn't actually happen, right? Remember that. Um well, certainly does in this film, right? We get the uh, wolf, we get the bat, we get the return to the swarm of rats from Nosferatu again. Um, he can totally do the animal thing, but it's more than just I can transform myself into an animal for convenience of locomotion or whatever, right? Um, as we can see from the choice, a remarkable choice, which we haven't seen anything like in any of the other films, and certainly nothing described in the book, this business right with the this sort of werewolf look that he has this half bestial half human appearance um that he goes into and goes into quite frequently right he's in this he's in this mina uh or sorry mina i'm reading comments he's in this wolf with this wolf guys right but he's not a wolf he's not a man he's halfway in between he does the same thing with the bat later on when he's this batman guy he is batman right um later on in the film in a much more literal sense than Batman himself is ever Batman. So uh, the sense of that seems to be pretty clear, right? The suggestion, rather, of the film, we're seeing he's, he, he himself has this, this bestial nature. It's not just a question of, um, you know, the beast being used, as I said, for pure convenience. This is, this is, this is him, right? This, part of, this is a big part of who he is. We are being invited to identify him with beasts and with... The, bestiality, that sort of the bestial desires, his calling out to Lucy and then Lucy coming and then his uh, uh, very violent uh, enormously sexual scene that he has with Lucy where he not only bites her um, but he has this um, uh, x-rated moment there on the table but did you notice also they even connected that backwards that frankly ridiculous scene where Lucy and Mina 
are, are, are like looking at like the naughty pictures in the Arabian Nights, right? The naughty illustrations in the Arabian Nights earlier on. And Lucy points to one and says, I did that last night. And, uh, you know, and, and Mina's like, oh, you fibber, you never did. Right. And she says in my dreams. Right. So you get the dream thing. And that picture is actually the same sexual position that Dracula is using with Lucy in that later uh, in that later scene. So even like the dream. So the, like I said, the sexual thing, um, it seems to me in large part to be connected with the whole bestial thing that's going on, like that, that he is associated with these sort of bestial desires, these very uh, sort of based. The, so he's his appeal to Lucy is entirely sex based. And we see Lucy kind of vulnerable to that as she seems to think about sex a lot. Right. So he's kind of appealing to her on that level in his beast form. Right. And then when he bites her, it's not just that there is this sort of sexualized language. It becomes an actual literal sexual encounter as well. Um, so, OK, so this is one side of Dracula, which we see very clearly. Right. The connection to the beast and with these uh, with these sort of base and very frequently sexual desires. OK, but it's not just that. Right. Obviously, the film does a good deal more with Dracula than just that. And here comes one of my uh, one of my favorite cuts. Loved this one even more than the "I love him, I love him, I love him" one. It's Van Helsing, of course, doing some research. Here goes the shocking and frightening history of the wild berserker prince Dracula. I impaled people and roasted them, boiled their heads in the kettle. I skinned them alive and hacked them to pieces and then drank their blood. Yeah. Yeah. Draco. For blood is the life. <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? I mean, that cut, right? That is just gorgeous. It made especially funny that it's that it's from a woodcut, right? I mean, this, this is a woodcut, right? And we cut straight to you know, the same same posture, sitting at a table, right? But we replace the impaled people with shadows. There's always shadows going on in the background, right? And and chandeliers and candles, right? And of course, I've got to get my my mouse off the picture so that the Controls don't cover it up. Here, let me move this up here for now. I've got the head of like a baby on his plate, right? So the woodcut here shows Vlad the Impaler with the baby, the head of the baby on his plate, right? And him leaning back and like picking his teeth, right? And we get him and he's not picking his teeth or, you know, uh, smoothing the blood out of his mustache or whatever it is that he's doing here. You know, he's just looking thoughtful and there isn't a baby this is just like a nice restaurant where he's um you know waiting for mina and of course this is the scene where mina stands him up right where mina sends him the letter saying that she's heard from jonathan and she's going off uh to to marry him right um yeah good good point lydia lydia's pointing out that like this this dude over here 
right? Who's like picking up the tor the torso and the the dismembered limbs, um, is in the same position as the waiter, right? When the waiter comes in to deliver the letter, uh, the the letter, which of course is going to cut uh, poor Dracula to the to the soul. Mina saying, "I'm going off to marry Jonathan, uh, and we must never meet again," right? And of course, he's going to end up weeping here in this scene, leading to the really interesting visual scene of him in his wolfman guise, right? Um, weeping, right? Uh, just, 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 just in tears, weeping tears, the wolfman weeping tears of blood as Mina is sailing out to go and marry Jonathan, right? Yeah, exactly, Veronica. He transforms sort of in the middle of his weeping there. And um, so notice, again, first we see him, this juxtaposition, right? The juxtaposition of totally unsympathetic monster, right? I mean, this is what Van Helsing is showing us in this book, right? By the way, put some John Lennon glasses on this guy, and the the costuming for Oldman actually is really good. Like the way they do his hair and, and mustache and everything to make him look just like this woodcut. Cause it's a very famous, both of these are very famous woodcuts. Um, this one and the, the, uh, eating, you know, with a baby head on the plate picture with the people impaled, very famous images. And they actually do a really amazing job of, and this really looks like it could be, it could be him. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, so far from the one-sided monster, the inhuman monster that we get here, we have him like, inhuman monster, yes, right? And yet we have this suffering. This is a moment when we, um, when clearly our sympathies are being recruited to Dracula's side, right? We, we, I mean, it's, it's awful, right? What happens to him here? We know, it's not just like, you know, the girl that I really liked has dissed me and she's, you know, gone off and she's marrying somebody else. Like, that's kind of sad, right? Under any circumstances. But knowing the tragedy from the beginning and how he's losing her for a second time, right? Um, it's 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 a big deal. So, I mean, the, the, and the way that that's really reinforced the contrast between the traditional view of Dracula, right? That is pure monster just eating people because he's horrible, a horrible, evil monster. And the Dracula who is suffering in this very human way. Um, yeah, Arthur, he is more like a fallen hero. Um, I think that's, uh, that certainly gets established at the beginning, which we are, we are going to get around to that eventually. But, um, but there's another thing I want to point out here. It's not here. The point is not merely the contrast between this image and the reality of the Dracula that we have come to know in this film. Notice also, listen, watch the pictures. Watch the pictures. Listen to Van Helsing's dialogue as he's kind of narrating this for us, as he's flipping through his big picture book of, of vampires, right? And he, and so listen to it. And there's a, there's, I think a very significant moment of disjunction prior to the 
the fade to Dracula, right? That that wonderful cut. Um, prior to that, there's a moment I think of pretty serious disjunction. Uh, tell me if you tell me if you notice it. Shocking and frightening history of the wild berserker prince Dracula. How he impaled people and roasted them, boiled their heads in the kettle. How he skinned them alive and hacked them to pieces and then drank their blood. Yeah. 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 Um, yes, Carita, exactly. The picture of the falling woman goes unmentioned. Right? Here we go. This is the summary. Listen to what he says as he's telling us the history of Dracula. The history of Dracula in the book appears to include the tragic death of his wife, right? Of his bride. Elisabetta, as this is her falling into the river, right? But listen to what Van Helsing is saying. White berserker Prince Dracula. He impaled people and roasted them, boiled their heads in a kettle. He impaled people and roasted them and boiled their heads in a kettle. Now, okay, fair enough. Like, yeah, that seems to be true, right? He did all of those things. Um, but as he's showing as as we are looking at this scene and we've seen it again we had the context we saw her jump into the river in the first 5 minutes of the film and we know the tragic significance of that and the role that this played um so to some extent it might not be like this this picture might not be enough for us as viewers it might it might not be enough to excuse what dracula does and what he becomes it's not like oh well you know, yes, so he impales lots of people and he, he's, he's, you know, he does all these horrible things, but it's under, I'm not saying it excuses it. It, it doesn't excuse it. Um, but the story that we remember as we see the pictures go by is a richer story, right? We have like first just the headshot, right? Just the portrait. This is a guy, right? A nobleman who could kind of go either way. And then the tragic thing happens. And then he reacts very badly, right, to the death of his bride. And he ends up doing really horrible things, but then is very tragic and sad, right? The story that we're being visually reminded of is not just simply, this is a, this is a reminder, Right. This is this. It's it's not just it's not just this is a monster as Van Helsing wants to depict him. And that's something that we get from Van Helsing very consistently, in fact. Right. In fact, that seems to be one of Van Helsing's primary roles. And I, I, I want to kind of come to this um, because uh, although, Jana, I know you are excited to have somebody who actually is doing a genuine Dutch accent, which I know is 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 a relief after book Van Helsing. But think about Van Helsing's role in this film. What does he do? What's the point of him? I mean, you could say he diagnoses it. Yeah, I mean, he knows it's a vampire, right? Notice how um, this Van Helsing is kind of like the horror of Dracula Van Helsing, right? It's kind of like Peter Cushing's Van Helsing, um, where this is his life's work, right? He's been pursuing Dracula his whole life, apparently, Um it's not the same sort of sense that, although he, perhaps his lecture at the beginning when he's lecturing on vampire bats is, you know, maybe he's, you know, it's part of the, like, you know, senior lecturer in vampire studies 
you know, in Antwerp or something like that. But, um, but, um, yeah, Nancy says he seems kind of crazy and bitter. Yes, crazy, certainly, Nancy. I'm, I'm reminded of that moment. Remember, uh, when Dr. Seward in the book, uh, briefly has that, you know, thinks perhaps Van Helsing is mad and he's like, no, it would seem like a stranger than anything else, right? Stranger than all of the bizarre things we've seen to imagine that Van Helsing could possibly be mad. Uh, nobody could say that in the films, right? But again, look, so this is right after he has arrived and they've just done the transfusions and he's talking to Jack and Quincy and Arthur out in the garden. Gentlemen, we're not fighting some disease here. Those marks in your dear Miss Lucy's neck were made by something unspeakable out there. Dead, but not dead. It stalks us for some dread purpose I do not yet comprehend. To live, it feeds on Lucy's precious blood. It is a beast, a monster. Okay, point. How about that transition, right? A monster, right? It's a little monstrous. Right? The whole blood from the mouth thing and buried up to my neck in dirt. That kind of says monster to me. Um, But um, notice how dismissive he is. Is that a bat? I I think that's a huge bat that has just flown across. And notice how Van Helsing doesn't even notice it. And the three of them are like, what was that? Right, you got Quincy being like, that thing comes by one more time, I'm taking a shot, right? Um, Van Helsing is very flat. It is a beast, a monster. That declaration by Van Helsing rings false in this film. In the book, Van Helsing was the guy who knew, not because he had this sort of secret career as, you know... uh, as like the secret enemy of Dracula or something, but because he was open-minded, right? And learned from this stuff and figured out what was going on. But again, the important thing is that he was the one who was observing what was happening, right? That was his whole point. Like, pay attention to what you actually see and allow yourself to draw conclusions from what you actually see. Van Helsing in the film is different, almost opposite, right? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to flatten everything, right? I'm going to be like tone deaf and colorblind. Um, he has his simplistic thing. Dracula is a monster, a beast out there, right? And, um, and it doesn't work. It doesn't match with what we see as viewers in this film. As we saw, he's much more complicated. Yeah, beast, sure, monster, yes, we see both of those things. It's not that that's totally untrue, but it is not at all a satisfying answer. And just in case we weren't uncomfortable with Van Helsing, he carries on acting like this. (laughs) Jack, hurry! I've much to tell you! (laughs) You Yonder well, Mr. Morris. Do not fail here tonight. We are dealing with forces... Beyond all human experience and enormous power. So guard her well. Otherwise, okay. your precious Lucy will oh, become a bitch of the devil. <laughs> a horn of darkness. <laughs> well, you're a sick old buzzard. <laughs> sick old buzzard. Here we are, young man. Lucy okay. is not a random victim attacked by mere accident. Do you understand? No. 
she's a willing recruit, a breathless follower, a wanton follower, I dare say a devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. <laughs> you understand me? Yes. I'm afraid I do. We may still save her precious soul. Oh, good. But well, then, all right. I've done an empty stomach. Jack, kill some. Ah, I starve. Feed me. Feed me. Oh, I'm with Quincy. Are you with Quincy? I mean, old Coot. I think is is a, I think he's being restrained and gentle here. Um, um, Rickles asking, is there any significance to his line? Feed me. Well, I mean, of course, there's irony there, right? As we see him, you know, again with like it's it's another base desire. It's not it's not, it's not sex. It's hunger. It's not it's not sex. It's food, right? The sort of base desire that he's kind of giving into, which is kind of an odd, just an, it strikes an odd note in that whole scene, right? But the whole like, but he's just like okay, so he's like. He's got it all figured out, right? Guard Lucy, whatever you do. Anyway, whatever, I'm out of here because I'm kind of peckish, right? I mean, can you imagine Van Helsing in the film being like, I would love to save Miss Lucy and she must be guarded carefully. It is very imperative, uh, but I'm kind of hungry, so I'm going to leave, right? So I can feed my... No, John, you go away too. Feed me. That's much more important than guarding Lucy. I mean, it's just how out of touch he is with people, right? With everybody, absolutely everybody. Van Helsing is in, like, his own island here, right? I mean, he is... uh, You can't trust what Van Helsing says. And again, that's so different from the book, right? But this is not the worst moment. Oh, or I say worst when what I really mean is best. My favorite Van Helsing moment from the whole film. How did Lucy die? Was she in great pain? Yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stake to her heart and burned it, and then she found peace. Doctor! Please. So, Mr. Harker, I must now ask you, as your doctor, Here comes. a sensitive question. Yeah. During your infidelity with those creatures, those demonic women, did you for one instant taste of their blood? <laughs> Talk about questions to which there is no right answer. <laughs> right? <laughs> During your infidelity with those demonic women <laughs> it's like nothing nothing that follows that can possibly come to any good <laughs> right I mean right in front of his wife right and there's Mina's expression she, you know there are expressions here right now like Keanu Reeves I will give him credit he does stunned really well right stunned is one of his best looks you know that like <laughs> look that is kind of like how his face naturally goes right so like the stunned and like a little bit ticked off 
here. And then, you know, looking for, so are you going to answer the during your infidelity with the demonic women question, dear? Right? Uh, no. <laughs> and then he just pounds this no. beer back. No. <laughs> Again, with feeling, Keanu. Good. Then you have not infected your blood with the terrible disease that destroyed poor Lucy. <laughs> and, and Mina's face, she's like, oh, good. That's such good news, honey. <laughs> Congratulations on not con- 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 corrupting your blood from the your infidelity with the demonic women. I mean... Uh, seriously. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm sorry. I, I laughed so hard. I didn't even remember this. I mean, I remember the cut, which is, which begins that scene from cutting off Lucy's head to, to carving the roast. Um, I, I, um, but, oh man, when I, when I got to the, I, I had to like stop the movie. I was laughing so hard. This is an absolutely hysterical. And Karita, exactly. Remember what was the, remember what Van Helsing was making jokes about in that first lecture about syphilis and venereal disease, right? Uh, exactly. So yeah, it, it, it all comes back to that again. These things are all, th- this film Although there are so many there, there are things that I find really extraneous, and I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of like the nudity and all the and all the the, the sexual innuendo, especially the like the ridiculous stuff about uh, the Quincy's Bowie knife and whatnot. But um, I don't like all that. But it it does hold together really well. I mean, they do. They don't. It's not. You can't say that it is purely. Um, you know that it's that it's it's purely extraneous that it's just like sort of thrown in there for sensational effect it's definitely a part of the fabric of this film and it it all ties together really well um i still don't have to like it mick wonderful point wonderful point and you see the significance of that mick again that's another thing that i i had um the the only extent to which i noticed this back when i first saw this film was just to observe the fact that this film uh, uniquely, I don't remember any other films actually preserving the, um, uh, actually preserving the graying of Jonathan Harker's hair, right? How Jonathan Harker's hair goes gray overnight. Um, that's, um, that's kind of cool. But you see, although they kept that, you see the significant shift, right? Um, When does his hair go gray? What makes his hair go gray? It's obviously not Mina getting bitten, right? And his experience... That's when, of course, it happens in the book, is that when it is revealed that Dracula has been feeding on Mina, it is his torment at the thought of the uh, of the suffering of his wife that makes his hair go gray. Exactly, Rachel. It's due to his own experiences instead of meaning. It's his traumatic experience at Castle Dracula, right? His being tortured. And there's that one scene. I didn't put it up because it was just that one little brief glimpse. But when he's standing there and it looks like he's been crucified. He's, he's, they show him up against the wall with his arms outstretched and the vampire women uh, feeding from his extremities. 
right? Um, as the blood oozes from his hands and feet. Uh, it, that's what marked him, right? That's why his hair is gray. And it totally changes his character. He is... And, and, and why? What's the effect of that? One of the effects of that, I think, is that it's hard to see him as a... He's not the romantic lead in this film, for which I'm grateful, because it's Keanu Reeves. But, um, but Jonathan Harker is not the romantic lead, right? We have a love story here, and it involves... Jonathan Harker's wife, but Jonathan Harker is not the male lead of that love story, right? It's Dracula. And one of the consequences... I mean, think about the change. Had they gone out of their way further to make Jonathan a more openly devoted... I mean, hes it's not that he's not devoted to Mina. Um, he seems to be in love with Mina, and he takes it... But, but again, it's more about... He is himself an injured person, right? He is himself damaged. And so we see his experience of seeing Mina Bitten is more like sympathy, right? He, he knows what she's going through, and he's sorry for, uh, for that and for that reason. But he, seeing her as a fellow sufferer, instead of primarily seeing her as a husband with the desire that we see so strongly emphasized in the book, his desire to protect her, his desire to avenge her, um, he's, you know, the... The, devo- the complete devotion of Jonathan Harker to his wife in the book is a central emphasis. If that emphasis were placed to the same extent in the film, our own, um, our own feelings would be divided, right? As we are watching this, he's much more in the background, and his connection with Mina is much more distantly treated, and therefore we are being positioned in a place where we can see Mina's relationship with Dracula as the real center of the of the book, right? Dr- Jonathan kind of doesn't get in the way, right? Um, okay. All right, I'm not doing a great job of being efficient here tonight. Lots more to talk about. Let's get down to the serious stuff. Let's look at let's look at that opening. And here, of course, I want to deal with what I'm sure you all knew I was going to want to deal with, the Christian stuff, right? Okay, so I've been complaining about that, right? I mean, you know, I've been complaining about that now. Okay, well, I've been, compla- I've been observing about it for one film and then complaining about it for the next two. How in Nosferatu, all Christian elements, all spiritual stuff is taken out. There's still supernatural elements to Dracula's. He still has supernatural powers. Um, we have that, you know, that sort of preternatural ability of Nina's love, both to call out to and protect Jonathan, and ultimately to vanquish the vampire in the end. Well, I mean, with the help of the sunlight, but still. Um, but no Christian stuff. No religious symbolism of any kind, except for the plague sign on the doors. The second, the next two films the horror of Dracula and the Bela Lugosi film, both return the crucifix, right? We, We get the crucifix back in both of those films, and it has, in both films, has a significant power uh, in fact, in the horror of Dracula, it seems to have an almost unique power. Garlic is there, but, uh, there's no garlic slash wolfsbane playing the really significant role. It's all about the crucifixes in, uh, in the horror of Dracula, right? Um, it's even the crucifixes. We don't even get the host, right? It's it's all crucifixes, burning Mina's hand and burning Lucy's forehead, right? In the, again, in the previous film. Um, 
But remember, I was complaining. And my complaint was, in the book, there was a reason for that, right? It was the, the, the significance of the crucifix, why the crucifix has a partic- this particular effect on Dracula, was woven deep into the fabric of that story. And I was disappointed by the fact that it just seemed to be kind of thrown out there, like it's just another tool, and there's no explanation, and it was not at all uh, connected to the story. No explanation of that was given. No, It was not really sort of picked up on thematically almost anywhere uh, in either one of those stories, even in the horror of Dracula, where it was so prominent. Well, I don't have that complaint in this film, right? In this film, we certainly talk very much more about the relationship between Dracula and Christianity. Um, So I shall not complain that it has been sidelined. Watch the opening here. Okay, so here's Dracula on the battlefield. Shadow's fighting. So we got him turning to Shadow Man for the first time. Which is significant, right? We see... That is a shocking waste of arrows. Did you really need seven arrows to shoot that one guy? I mean, you think arrows grow on trees, people? Honestly. And you've only got three archers anyhow. So, I mean... Must have been ganging up on that guy for a really long time. Uh, Anyway... So we have the trans, the translation, and, and the red sky in the background, right? That red sky in the background makes a, uh, makes well, yes, of course, Sean Bean, James Leback, but they needed seven arrows to kill Boromir. I'm not convinced that that guy, that guy's no Boromir. Anyway, uh, point is red sky. So that red sky visually comes back at several other points uh, in in the film, which I, I thought that, that was a really a really cool uh, and significant effect. So we see him on the battlefield fighting for the cross, right? So he's fighting for the cross against the invading Muslims, uh, and he is... But he's in this black outline, and we see him victorious in battle. But that's probably good, right? Winning is good. That's still good. I mean, it's a little gross, but it's good. That's... That's not really good. Is that entirely necessary? All the impaling... So, are you a good guy or a bad guy, Mr. Dracul? Oh, good guy! Right! It was all done in devotion, all the impaling, too? I am victorious, and all of my enemies have been put up on stakes. So, like, we're getting some moral ambiguity here, right? Oh, yeah. Better go back to your wife. Turks shot an arrow into the castle, carrying false news of Draculia's death. Elisabetta, believing him dead, flung herself into the river. Because if you can't trust a note attached to an arrow fired into your castle by the enemy uh, as as a reliable source of news, then what can you trust, right? But anyway, sort of leaving that aside... um, yeah, Lydia Lydia likes how he, it doesn't have an army. It's just him and his horse. It's from the book, remember? Like, though he had to leave the field himself, though his army was being slaughtered. Now, he's won, right, instead of fleeing from a defeat, right? But but again, like, though I alone come with, like, with the people around, and we see it surrounded by corpses, right? 
corpses chiefly overseen by himself, however. Um, there goes Elisabetta into the river. Into the chapel. Notice how that purple color, right, on the note, that's also a motif that keeps coming back in the film. Like, it's the same color as the tears that he weeps uh, in that scene that it cuts to from the woodcut when he gets Mina's letter saying that she's going off to get married, the tears that drip onto it are the, this exact purple color uh, as he's remembering her suicide. It's like she's killing herself again, right? Was lost without him. May God unite us in heaven. May God unite us in heaven. Or alternatively. So he's upset, right? And we see his grief, and this is awful. <laughs> The tragedy, right? The, I mean, he was going off to almost certain death in battle. The narrator was emphasizing this. The narrator, who is, of course, Van Helsing. But anyway, um, so uh, he was going off to almost certain death. And so like it was like he was committing suicide, but he was doing his duty, right? And she was like, don't go. But he's like, I have to go. So, uh, okay. But, and oh, the horrible irony, right? Against all odds, he survives, apparently. Only he survives. But anyway, he survives and comes back to find that she dies, not him. I mean, that's terrible, right? Um, really, it's really terrible. Um, not exactly yet. Yeah, Nancy, he is very tactful. Almost as tactful as Van Helsing. In fact, Van Helsing's speech over Lucy in her grave is almost exactly the same. He, he doesn't say word for word, but he expresses almost exactly the same thing. Uh, and Arthur responds not quite like this, um, but a little bit. Actually, I really love Carrie Elwes's line in that that the the extremely restrained, this is insane <laughs> line that Carrie Elwes delivers there. Okay, so oh dear, that's holy water and blood. Um, so you're angry, and I get that. You'll rise from your own death to avenge her with all the powers of darkness. Which seems to be true, by the way. Did you notice that Dracula's power is very much greater? He has powers that, like, he seems to be, like, telekinetic, and he can make things burst into flames, and he... Uh, there's all kinds of things he can do that vampires could not do in the book. Um, it does seem to be... And with Again, this is the context that we get for understanding vampires, is from the very beginning here. He's going to avenge her death with all the powers of darkness. He does seem to have a fairly broad satanic mandate uh, for his abilities uh, in this film. 
Okay, so he sets himself up as the opponent of... Oh, like a re-crucifixion, right? And the blood comes out. So this is a miracle? And there's a grail sitting there, fortunately. So he finds a grail. Blood is the life. And it... It, the blood or it the life? Both, I guess. So fortunately there was a grail. But again, you see, so he stabs the cross and the blood comes from the cross. But there's a grail which captures the blood that comes from the cross. That's the holy grail thing, right? Uh, the significance of the grail, um, at least in many of the stories, is that it's 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 the, it caught the blood which dripped from Christ's wounded side um, in the crucifixion or at the crucifixion. Uh, so he's got the unholy grail here, right? Uh, and he does this blasphemous communion ritual. Whose blood is that? Where is it coming from? Is this a is this a a, a, a sort of is this a divine miracle to sort of sort of manifest? his condemnation or something or is this i mean the tear the the angels weeping tears of blood seem to kind of suggest something like that um or is this like some kind of demonic you know miracle um uh, you know it's uh i'm not really sure rachel says he's avenging her death against whom a question to be asked rachel i mean i again like he's very upset right now and so he's not being entirely rational and i'm not going to throw stones there but um uh, um, his desire for life and or blood here again just in order to fuel his revenge but then I love the visuals so notice how the blood is now oozing towards her right so he's saying that he's going to be defending her now it's him from here on that I want to really pay attention to, his eyes, right? So he's just drunk the blasphemous communion here, right? What do you make of his face? was recording i kept going to hit stop there after each chord like no oh not yet anyway sorry um what do you make of this at the end is i mean he's upset i I, and i i i respect that is this remorse i mean that is is he saying like is this a like an oh what have i done kind of moment um his facial expression, but I mean, here as he's like, you know, is he looks a little bit uncertain, right? This is not like the look of a confirmed villain, right? Um, Margaret says it didn't seem to be what he expected. Yeah, buyer's remorse, Arthur, is kind of along uh, kind of what I was, uh, uh, what I was, what I was thinking, and uh, yeah, I, it, James, it does kind of seem like he thinks that he's made. A horrible mistake. And the shots that we get of Elisabetta being covered in blood, 
here and he's staggering back and he's looking and, and see now the tide of blood is coming. So he said he's going to avenge her, but now instead he is like involving her and, and he's going to, you know, her own body is going to be overwhelmed in the blood here. Right. So that's presumably not the plan. And he's looking at that and he's like, no. So uh, he's has, I guess, a conflicted relationship, right? Um, yeah, Mick, uh, Mick says he's realized what's happened, but, it, but you know, the devilish pact has been forged and he's now subject to his doom. Um, yeah, and Carolyn doesn't always about to look like a sacrifice on a pagan altar, and it's almost like he sees her that way at the end, right? Rec- you know, he, he makes this vow, right, out of, um, you know, d- desire to avenge her, right? But it's not actually for her, uh, for her benefit. Right. Um, yeah. Does, you know, Kimber's asking, does the, the tide of blood lead to her resurrection? I don't know, man. Reincarnation, really. I, I, I don't know what's up with the reincarnation. I mean, the reincarnation is never, uh, uh is never, um, explained, but, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, but so anyway, it's conflicted here, right? This is not just, um, not just somebody who is, you know, from the beginning, basically believes that he's the good guy, right? Um, there seems to be some self-loathing involved in that final outcry. How creepy is this scene with him shaving sure Jonathan from behind? Put your faith in such trinkets of deceit. We are in Transylvania, and Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways. And to you, there shall be many strange things. I've seen many strange things already. Bloody wolves chasing me through some blue inferno. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Though I will say this is the most expressive Keanu Reeves face gets in the entire film. So strong work there, Keanu. This, I think, would be his Oscar clip, right? This is totally if for and he got robbed in 92, man. I mean, if anybody deserved Best Supporting Actor, it should have been him. And this would have been the clip. I've seen many strange things already. Yeah. Bloody wolves chasing me Inferno. Inferno. Just creepy so well. Oldman does. Yeah, and Philip, you get the, the shadow stuff going on again. Yeah. I love his delivery of the Children of the Nightline. And then we immediately get him acting like a beast, right? The, the lizard crawl from the book, Veronica, looking 
completely inhuman, right? Good. James points out the parallel, the visual parallel between that red, that really long red cloak and the tide of blood creeping across the floor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I'm sorry. So I, I, uh, I, I got a little overindulgent in this clip on account of Keanu's awesome performance. But the crucifix bit. What do we see in the crucifix bit? See the important thing, indeed, the reversal that happens? Did you notice that? In the book, he is coming at Jonathan, and his hand touches the crucifix, and he is repelled, right? Here he only sees it in reflection, uh, and it, there is irony, right? Uh, Kimber, that he sees it in, in the mirror, right? He casts no reflection, but he sees the crucifix in the mirror. And he he is not repelled by it. He repels it, right? That is, he pushes Jonathan away and tells him not to put his faith in such baubles, right? Um, that is, we see him not being driven away by it, not taking his place far off and silent with respect, as Van Helsing says in the book. We see him rejecting it, right? And that's the thing, the kind of thing that we keep seeing. Uh, this is one of those scenes that required some very careful cutting on my part to keep this class PG rated. Oh, he's wearing a crucifix. It's a good thing that he's... Oh. And then she licks up the molten metal or whatever it is, right? Um... Okay, so th that moment is really out there, right? Because, I mean, first of all, remember in the book he takes the crucifix off. That's why he's vulnerable in this moment, right? Which was a, a bonehead move on Jonathan's part uh, in the book. Here it's like, oh, well, at least he's wearing the crucifix. So at least that'll keep him uh, Not so much, right? So we see it first in his uh, Dracula's pushing away of him with the crucifix, not the crucifix repelling Dracula. Now we see the women, they just, it just melts away, right? And we see, of course, a similar thing later. This is right after the big scene with Mina, when he's confronted by Van Helsing. of an idol and then sets it on fire. What is Dr. Seward holding? What's with the steaming beaker of like cranberry juice? I don't get that at all. Um, but notice what just happened with Dracula here, right? How they bring in the line, right? I who commanded nations, right? But in the, it's Brandy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Nancy Fosberg says it's scientific. That actually is, uh, uh, seems, seems likely. And yeah, Philip, Jonathan's hair is getting whiter as the film goes on, right? Uh, maybe his blood isn't so clean after all, uh, after the infidelity with the demonic women. But anyway, um, so, yeah. In the book, he's just boasting, 
Dracula is just boasting, right? I, who commanded nations, right? You would put your brains against me, right? Uh, pit, not put. Um, would pit your brains against me. Here, notice how they take that same line, and he's using it in the same sort of self-aggrandizing way, but it, he it recontextualizes it, right? I fought for the cross. I, who commanded nations. He's pointing out how he fought for the cross, but God failed him, right? So he, so he, so he has power over the crucifix in this film, right? Pretty amazing. Um, okay. So we have that, right? All right. Um, from there, let's look at the love story. What'd you think of the love story? Well, okay. Um, in a sense, of course, you could uh, you could say that the whole central plot feature of this film is like a long commentary on that one line that we talked about from the book, which uh, never gets explained, and does but does get used, does get quoted in the film. <laughs> Okay. Um, See, it's funny because I was, when we got here, right? You yourself never, never loved. And he responds, yes, I too can love. In the book, the next line is, you yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Right? And since we started this film in the past, now we, the viewers, can tell it from the past. Right? So I was totally expecting to deliver the next line. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Right? Because that would have had this interesting double meaning. Right? Because, of course, we, the viewers, also would be able to tell it from the past. Whereas, of course, in the book, that line is wholly mysterious. Um... But instead, of course, we get, and I shall love again. Uh, and this, I think, uh, is where we get the fullest and most perfect view of, like, his hairdo as heart. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like a valentine. It looks like a box of valentine's chocolates in this picture, except ugly. <laughs> right? <laughs> but anyway, anyway, okay. Now, it's not quite Mickey Mouse ears, Carolyn, but I do see what you mean. Um, <laughs> okay. Arthur and Karita are a little bit less kind, calling it butt-shaped hair, which it's not that I can't see that. Um, I, 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 I see what you're getting at there, but it, it's romantic. It's totally romantic, I, I think. That's what it's about. Okay, so we have this line at the center and that shift, right, which sort of signals to us this is not just a, an isolated thing. You know, we're, 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 we are moving forward with this, which, of course, we probably should have guessed as soon as we recognized that Winona Ryder, who's playing Mina, was also playing Isabetta before. But look at how it develops. This is Lucy at her party being outrageously, ludicrously, uh, uh, oversexed, right? That you know that she just did the thing with the Bowie knife with with Quincy, 
right? Uh, and she's making all these extravagantly uh, sexual comments. Lucy is a pure and virtuous girl. I lol. I admit that a free way of speaking shocks me sometimes. Pure and virtuous. Says it is a defect of the aristocracy that they say what they please. The truth is that I admire Lucy, and I'm not surprised that men flock around her. I wish I were as pretty and as adored as she. Another great cut. What manner of man is this? Um, exactly, Philip. Nosferatu again. First with the shadow on the wall. Then with the shadow of his hand over her heart. Just like in Nosferatu, when when the vampire comes to Nina at the end, and I was I was doing that thing. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't he doesn't grab her heart uh, because he's not. This is this is the gentle vampire, right? But then you see what he... Then it's another Nosferatu reference. He's calling out across the... He's still in Transylvania, right? He's calling out across the miles, and she hears him or something, right? Look, she looks up. She looks up like she makes eye contact with the person who would be there if a person were actually casting that enormous shadow, which lingered on Lucy first and then came over to her, right? And so she, it's like she hears him, his love calling out to her across the miles, right? And then we see his face, which admittedly, doesn't look like super loving. Yes, he looks like Emperor Palpatine. You're totally right. But um, anyway, um, it's... uh, uh, The the way they take... They take these two Nosferatu scenes, right? The scene of Nina crying out to to, to her, you know, her love across the, the miles to save Jonathan. And the scene of the vampire coming to her in her bed, right? And they bring them together and create this entirely new idea, right? The idea of the vampire who is still sinister, right? Um, but, um, but who also is the tragic love hero of the story. Um, by the way, there's no sense fighting this, right? We have to just kind of... You don't have to like the subplot. It's totally fine if you don't like it. But we have to go along with it, right? I mean, we're given that frame. Um, I feel like it's not appropriate to just be kind of heckling it the whole time, being like, oh, Dracula would never be in love, right? Oh, this is ridiculous to continue for us to, to ask us to do this. I mean, I, you can reject it. You can dislike wh- what they do. But in order to sort of evaluate the story that they're telling, we have to we have to kind of go along with it, right? We have to be willing to sort of invest ourselves imaginatively in the story that they are telling. Um, anyway, okay. So here's uh, Mina and Dracula in their awesome hats. This is their first meeting together. And they've gone to the cinematograph where we're seeing like a Nosferatu era film, right? Sort of, actually, it's like a porno film, which I don't get, but whatever. Do not fear me. Don't fear me, just because I'm grabbing you and running off with you in my embrace. 
and skating around and holding you while you struggle. But don't be afraid. And throwing you down. Okay, I have to say, as pickup lines go, I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Is pretty good. I mean, that's a good line, right? Yeah, I mean, you got you got to give him credit for that one. Remember the contrast here. We've already gotten the bestial scene with Lucy, like the, the, the werewolf cry and then Lucy in her flowing red thingy and then the like bestial sex scene and everything. We've gotten that already. Right. So we've we, and now we're, we're getting this. Again, you see the conflicted nature, right? On the one hand, he was being he's being physically violent to her. He was restraining her. He he captured her and forced her into this back room and threw her down and held her down. I mean, this is like a rape, right? Um and, and we we get that. And she's freaked out. Then he delivers this really romantic line and he speaks to her in his native tongue, right? Which is Romanian, I think. I don't know what the language is. But anyway, he he speaks to her in his native and she recognizes it, right? Because she's like somehow reincarnated uh uh Elisabetta. Just go with it. I don't know why, but just go with it. It's fine. And uh um okay, so so and she said, you know, who are you? Right? I know you. So we have the the tender connection with his bride juxtaposed with the violence and of the of the you know the bestial violence. Right. And now it's, it kind of comes to a head as we get the, you know, the tenderness. But then we get the vampire thing, right, with the red eyes and the slowly extendable teeth, like the extendable arm, I guess, as the coachman. And now I'm going to viciously and unilaterally bite you. But no, he opts for tenderness instead. The tender caress of her cheek. And then the wolf comes. Okay, so it's like it is as if his bestial nature is like projected out, right? So we've got his bestial nature is now it's still there, still running around, right? But it's like he's detached it. Get the shadow battle, which looks exactly like the battle at the beginning, right? With the archers and the scimitars and everything, right? And we're running from Berserker the Wolf. Once again, she is cornered with like the by the snarling beast, like how she was taken and thrown down by him before. Then he calls off the beast, and it turns out to be tamed, right, and under his command. As him with his cane and his topper. I just love his hat. Come and pet the beast. Because wolves are nice. 
Sarah, I don't think we ever do get the wolf's name in the film. I'm totally importing that from the book. So she kind of likes the beast, right? So he's, yeah, he's, James, he's domesticated the beast, right? And of course their hands are touching as they're petting. They're both of them stroking the wolf. Now it's the thing that's bringing them together and sort of establishing this intimacy and friendliness between them. There is much to be learned from beasts. There is much to be learned from beasts. <clears throat> At the very least, this is a this is a complicated, much more complicated depiction of Dracula, right? Um, this question: Can is can he separate? Can he tame the beast? Can, does he have to be a member of Van Helsing? Right? It's a beast. It's a monster, right? Maybe it's separable. Maybe he can master that. Maybe. And anyway. And the way that that forms the bridge between them, really interesting. Then, of course, we have her memories and some more fascinating juxtapositions with the other interlaced storyline. You described my home as if you had seen it firsthand. It's your voice, perhaps. It's so familiar. It's like a... It's like a voice in a dream I cannot place. And it comforts me when I am alone. It comforts me when I am alone. And his... I think that Oldman does a wonderful job. I mean, the actor who does Dracula, I, I think it was fantastic. Um, and the, uh, that, the loneliness, right? That he's been alone. I mean, yeah, he's got his skanky vampire harem and everything, you know, but, but whatever, he's been alone, right? Uh, as after the death of his bride and the, you know, so the significance of this reunion to him and for him to perceive that she see she sort of perceives this too And yes, you are right, Margaret, that she is wearing her hair more like Elisabetta now, with it sort of down around the side. Uh, yeah, yeah. We get the direct parallel here. Her face. Oh. Her face. It's a river. Again with the shadows. Dancing shadows this time instead of fighting shadows. She's a river filled with tears of sadness and heartbreak. There's was a princess. Elisabeth. I know 
isn't that jacket awesome, Margaret? She was the most strengthened woman in all the empires of the world. Man's deceit took her from her ancient prince. She leapt to her death into the river that you spoke of. In my mother's tongue, it is called Archish. River Princess. Good. Carolyn points out that Mina is now wearing the blood red dress. Yes. I guess. Now the castle. Back to the castle. It's Jonathan escaping. He's made his resolution to escape at all costs. And here he is, boldly crawling above the precipice, like the very precipice that Elisabetta committed suicide down. Here, watch that next step, Jonathan. I don't, there's no, look out! He's falling sideways. Why did he fall sideways? Jonathan takes the same plunge that Elisabetta took just as Mina is taking this plunge. <clears throat> is this like a dreamscape? As we're waltzing in this completely dark room surrounded by candles? Meanwhile, poor Jonathan crawling out of the river. And then, wait for it. The shining cross in the darkness which guides Jonathan out of his suffering. Huh? I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is good stuff here, right? Um, so wait, so is this a foreshadowing? Because, okay, we were just focused on the river, right? And the suicide of the princess. And that was very sad. And Mina was in tears because she was half remembering her own tears and suicide in her former life, apparently. And she was also, of course, just sad hearing the story and hearing him tell the story um, with, yes, Kimber, those deep pleading eyes that Dracula has there, right? And uh, no, Sarah, it's not the mark of the plague. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, oh, Rico, what was with the diamonds? He totally, like, magically transformed her tears into diamonds. It's like apparently just one of those perks that he gets. Like it comes with the satanic package. I guess it's just one of those things that he can do that uh, Dracula in the book totally couldn't do. Anyway, okay, okay. So, but at that time, so as they're remember, and she is kind of taking the plunge back into her own memories, right? She is, you know, we got like the double image of Mina and Elisabetta, and they're sort of kind of merging there at the end. And so then finally with the tears and their embrace at the end, it's like we get the reunion of Elisabetta. So, so it's like the unsuicide of Elisabetta, right? She's coming out of the river at the same time that Bush, Jonathan, her fiance goes into the same river same path so off the same cliff into the same river right except he doesn't 
die, right? It's not his death. In fact, it's his salvation. You know, it's like this, like, quasi-baptismal moment, right? As he plunges into the water, saving him from the demonic women. And then he comes up and there's the shining cross calling him forwards, right? I mean, uh, that's uh, pretty good. And James, exactly, he's trying to save his life and she was trying to end hers. So it's exactly, it's a reversal, right? It's like exactly the same. It's like very parallel, but it is is a reversal. He's desperately trying to return to his fiance, whereas uh, she was, you know, believed that her fiance uh, was dead. Um, it's it's very it's very complicated. It's it's very complicated. There's so much going on here. And then this. Oh my goodness! I was just in raptures here. I couldn't believe they were gonna like when they started doing this. I couldn't believe they were doing it. Right? I'm like, oh, are they really going to pull that off? So we have Jonathan and Mina's wedding, right, out at the Abbey. And meanwhile, do you remember what's going on? What is this? What What's happening? Uh, meanwhile, back in England, what's happening? Yes, Rickle, the final attack on Lucy. Right? Lucy is being murdered at the same time. And how painful is that forced little smile that Mina gives him during their wedding, right? Compared to what we saw in the previous scene. Your impotent men with their foolish spells cannot I condemn you to living death, to eternal hunger for living blood. And the Eucharist! Oh, the direct juxtaposition! Can you believe it? And then I had to stop there because then he pounces up on Lucy and he bites Lucy's neck. But Lucy is, of course, topless, so I couldn't show you that uh, because she's always topless. Um, And uh, Lydia, yeah, he does look exactly like Emperor Palpatine when he says, my power. You're completely correct there. Um, Okay, okay. So you've got the direct connection, right? Just like the book, we've got the parallel between the vampiric feeding of blood, which leads to immortal life, right? And the taking of the wine in the Eucharist, right? Uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Mass, drinking the blood of Christ. Um, we've got the wedding ceremony between the two of them. And Dracula, through his speech here, makes his taking of Lucy into a a ritualistic act, right? This is not an impulsive act under this sort of bestial impulse that we saw before. He does transform entirely into a wolf, right? A black wolf, not the white wolf, not, you know, Berserker the white wolf that they were petting before uh, in that touching moment. Instead, you know, he be, so he turns himself into this black wolf. So he goes full bestial form, almost like in reaction, right? Since his salvation 
has been taken away, like that thing which drew him to be good in the first place, namely it was a beta slash Mina. Um, she's now rejected him and gone away. And, uh, and so now he's turning himself entirely to his dark side and his bestial side, right? His killing of Lucy um, seems to be done almost in, in retribution, right? For, uh, for Mina's departure. Um, and did you catch, by the way, when she's on the ship and she's taking his letters, I guess he wrote letters to her and she's flinging the letters into the, into the water, right? It's like she's committing suicide again, right? It's awful. Anyway, um, I'm going so far over time. <clears throat> one more. I have two more. I'll save one for the beginning of next time. This, of course, is Mina's choice. I want to be what you are. See what you see. Mm -hmm. Love what you love. Mina. Work with me. You must die to your breathing life. You must die to your breathing life. You are my love and my life always. Okay. Or not. Then I give you life eternal. You're right, Arthur. I missed that. That is a reference to the Book of Ruth. A vastly different context, of course, but the but the the the, the structure of that is similar. Um, you are totally right, and this is something that the film does. Not only does the film do some of the Bible references that the book does, it adds new Bible references that the book doesn't even do. And I I missed that one, Arthur, but I totally agree with you. So you remember how in the book this was a a perverted marriage, right? He did the whole you shall be um, flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood thing, right? Echoing the wedding vows as he compelled Mina against her will to drink the blood from his breast, right? Um, here, it's the wedding language is even more explicit, right? But, Philip, you're exactly right. She is emphatically not forced, like a kitten's face, into a saucer of milk here. Um, absolutely. And the wedding is more point. The wedding language here is more poignant because it's mutual. It's not, again, like this hideously upended and reversed and, uh, and, um, uh, you know, twisted wedding that we got, but instead it's like a real wedding, yes. sort of. Yes. Oh, oh. 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 
drink and join me in eternal life. Second thoughts again. Kind of like after the demonic pact in the beginning, right? He seems to be getting, but, but, but reversed, right? Sort of. Or like, I want to not go through with the demonic pact this time. Kind of, I had some buyer's remorse the first time. And now, like, I, again, remembering the tide of blood flowing towards Elisabetta at the beginning, right? And, and he's like, that wasn't what I wanted. But now he's doing it again, right? Um, you know, it's, but now he's, this is now self-sacrificial, right? His desire to keep her out for her own good and sacrificing his own happiness. Don't let this be. Please, I don't care. Make me. You're the cursed as I am to walk in the shadow of this for all eternity. Yeah, that's the downside. I love you too much. I love you too much to let you join me in. To condemn you to an eternity of suffering. That's going to backfire, Mina. Take me away from all this death. That's not the way to the... No. Oh, dear. So she's fairly assertive with the whole, like... Yeah. Um... And, uh, yeah, the... You're right... Arthur, it is like the Unholy Grail by proxy. He, he cuts his side open and he's there like with the, it's the crucifix thing again, right? So it's like she's drinking the blood directly from the side of Christ instead of out of the grail, right? Which captures it. Um, so yeah, we got that, we got that, that, that. Yeah, Karina, I'm not sure she understood the disclaimer there either. Um, okay, okay, I can't stop without the last scene, right? We got to do the last scene. It's a couple minutes long. I won't say too much about it. I will come back at the beginning of next time and say a little bit more about this. But uh, we have to at least... I can't end class without looking at the last scene after all that. So that, by the way, of course, is Quincy Morris's highly phallic bowie knife that is like eroticized bowie knife, thanks to Lucy, uh, sticking now out of his chest. But I like how he gets almost decapitated and mostly impaled in the heart um, so that we still have some time for a more than Shakespearean conclusion and death scene here. Um, and Dracula, instead of being opposed by everyone, including Mina, we do get Mina holding a gun, which we did get at the end of the book too, but instead of uh, helping to cover the gypsies, she is in fact defending Dracula from Jonathan and Arthur. And not Quincy so much. When my time comes, will you do the same to me? Will you? No. No! no wait! No, let them go! Let them go! Our work is finished here. Okay. Hers has just begun. What? Our work is finished here. Hers has just begun. We're just... Off they go. Poor Quincy Morris. Still gets his death scene, but no job satisfaction. 
He just watched Dracula walk out with Mina. All of us. Yeah, we are God's madmen. Another line from the book. And uh, yeah, Nancy, isn't it fascinating how Mina's line is line is the same in the book with a completely different meaning? Absolutely, it's um, it's there's several times when that happens in the film. Um. So we have the ceiling of the chapel, which has apparently Elisabetta and Dracula in his red armor. Looking down on the two of them, right? So we get the parallel scene. He apparently objects to being pulled into the chapel, which appears to be this very, the self-same chapel in which this whole story began. Uh, and he's as, as ob- objecting to the fact that God is... He shouldn't be here, or doesn't want to be here, because God has rejected him. <laughs> to be perfectly fair to God, however, that did seem to be initiated by him, in, by Dracula, indeed, to be totally fair. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. Did Dracula seriously lying there with bloody wounds and his arm outstretched just say it is finished? For those of you who don't get the reference, Jesus says that on the cross. That's like it is finished, he says, and then he dies. Right? As Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, It is finished. Uh Okay. Now, how many of you were saying, oh, nasty. She's going to give him the nasty, bloody kiss to the... Now, notice that he's in a monstrous form. And his monstrous form here is different from the other monsters. This is not his Wolfman form. This is not his Batman form. This is his nasty old man, but without his lovely hair, right? Um, He is just like... This is just pure monster, right? Not animal, but it's his, like, uh, my nasty fang-mouthed, bloody-faced uh, monster face, right? And she kisses him right in the nasty, blood-fangy mouth, right? I love And she still sees him as her love, even though he's not super attractive. There, in the presence of God... I understood at last how my love could release us all from the powers of darkness. And the wound made by his sword in the cross heals itself. And then his face shines with light after she kisses him. Our love is stronger than death. And James, you're totally right. God has forsaken me is also what Christ says on the cross. Very good, yes. Prior to it is finished, yes. Give me peace. Give me peace.
and the light. Look, look at the light on his eyes. Kind of like Bela Lugosi, except not. And he looks up at the cross over his head and thus dies. Now she kisses his dead lips, just like Arthur kisses Lucy's dead lips. And then she touchingly, sentimentally, <clears throat> thoughtfully, though somewhat surprisingly, takes out the knife and decapitates him. And looks exactly like Elisabetta there. And she looks up at the images of them and the light, the red light behind, like the red sky behind. It glows. The end. All right. I'm really slow on the update because I've said many times before. And if you could see my thought process as I was watching this again, you would have laughed at me because like, so his like bestial nasty fangy face is all glowing with light, which of course looks exactly like Disney's beauty and the beast, right? When like the beams of light come shining out of the beast after she kisses him. And, um, and, uh, and I'm like, wow, look, it's, it looks just like beauty and the beast. <clears throat> and then it's like several beats more before I'm like, no, stupid it doesn't just look like beauty and the beast it is beauty and the beast i mean that's exactly what I was, if we see her like embracing his bestial self and kissing him and like the effect that her love has in transforming him from the beast and he even he makes this reconciliation at the end like the god seems to have forgiven him with that healing of the miraculous healing of the wound that he made in the cross and with his looking up at the cross there at the end, you know, the, the, the peace that he seems to have found on his face. So yeah. Okay. There's more to untangle here, but I'm going to have mercy and let you guys go. Uh, we'll come back to this. Uh, we'll come back to this next time. So next time, one more movie. I promise I'm not going to say as much about that one as I said about this one. Um, uh, Wesley, Wes Craven's Dracula 2000 for next time for something quite different. And, uh, and then we're going to look at some conclusions and, and think about, uh, these, uh, sort of these films as a whole and think back and compare them with the book. That's what we're going to do next time. Thanks for joining me. This film will probably not make it to, or rather it won't last long on YouTube. Um, so again, you'll have to find alternate sources, uh, and, uh, and sort of spread the word about that. But anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.